It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, we are returning to our series in the history of ideas about the great essays and the great essayists. And we have reached the 21st century. Today's essay was written and published in 2000. It's by David Foster Wallace. It's about John McCain's doomed candidacy for the US presidency in that year and what it does and doesn't foresee about the future of American politics. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read lots of brilliant essays, including recently Patricia Lockwood on David Foster Wallace. To subscribe at a special rate for PPF listeners, the first three months for just £1 an issue, go to lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. David Foster Wallace is a writer who arouses very strong emotions. He's mainly known as a writer of fiction, short and long, some of it very, very long, for his many, many admirers, devotees. He is the man who reinvented the great American novel for his detractors, who are probably not as numerous, but they're pretty vocal. He is mocked. He is sometimes reviled as a fuss about nothing or, or worse than that. There was a notorious takedown review of Foster Wallace's epic novel, Infinite Jest, 1,079-page-long novel. In 1996, this is what the LRB's reviewer said about that book then, and I quote, Infinite Jest is one of the very few novels for which the phrase, not worth the paper it's written on, has real meaning in at least an ecological sense. Those emotions are still running high around David Foster Wallace, a lot of it is to do with the legacy of his life and particularly his death. He committed suicide in 2008 at the age of 46. He had battled depression all his life. And there have also been, since he died, stories about his relationships with women, abusive relationships. It's very fraught, the legacy of David Foster Wallace. But weirdly, that's probably not as true of his nonfiction as of his fiction. His nonfiction does not seem to arouse nearly such strong emotions. He was a great essayist, and he wrote on a remarkable range of subjects. But one of the reasons that it doesn't feel so fraught is the stakes are lower in his nonfiction. These subjects that he wrote about feel like they were for him, and he sometimes more or less says this, a break from the tormented task of becoming the great American novelist and reinventing the great American novel, the fiction was really hard work. The nonfiction, it wasn't a holiday, but it was relatively light relief from the fiction. And some of it, including many of his best-known essays, were just magazine commissions. He took time off to go and write about what magazines asked him to write about. He didn't choose the topics. And it's part of what gives his essays their appeal, some of their charm, 
it feels like he's just arrived at a scene and he's been asked by a magazine to take in the view and say what he thinks. And he does say what he thinks. He's very forthright in his nonfiction. But he also doesn't feel like he's invested his whole self in it. And that distance is part of the charm. It's true of one of his best-known essays called Consider the Lobster, which was commissioned by Gourmet magazine. And David Foster Wallace was sent to the main lobster festival to write about people eating lobster. And it ends up as a deeply impassioned and slightly tortured account of the ethics of boiling lobster alive for culinary pleasure. It's also true of the essay I want to talk about today. Rolling Stone magazine sent Foster Wallace for a week to cover the campaign for the Republican nomination for president in the year 2000 of John McCain. It was an upstart campaign against the frontrunner, George W. Bush. And as Foster Wallace says in the essay, he was partly sent by Rolling Stone because he wasn't a political writer. He certainly wasn't a political journalist. He didn't have a dog particularly in this fight. Not a lot was at stake for him, but there was a real buzz around McCain's campaign at that time. And there was a feeling that John McCain was doing politics differently. And they wanted to send someone along with a sharp eye, a really sharp eye, including a sharp eye for language and communication, to try and take the temperature of what was happening here, what was the fuss all about. And that's what David Foster Wallace does in this essay. It's called Up Simba, a completely insane title. I'll come back to why it's called Up Simba at the end. It was published in Rolling Stone in 2000. And it is an outsider's account of the insider world of politics. And that's why it works. It works because David Foster Wallace is a novelist taking a break to write about politics. It's also in a tradition that Rolling Stone was well known for, because a Rolling Stone writer had published what was probably, maybe still is, the best known ostensibly outsider account of an American presidential campaign. That was Hunter S. Thompson, who wrote for Rolling Stone and covered the 1972 presidential campaign, starting with the Democratic nomination process. He followed particularly George McGovern, and then through to the general election, which was won by Richard Nixon. Hunter S. Thompson wrote about that whole year in American politics. He published it as Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail. He was a notorious outsider of a kind. He was absolutely, Thompson, not a typical political journalist in the sense that there was a lot of drinking, maybe that is typical, but also a lot of drugs. He was dangerous, I think genuinely a dangerous man. He was a renegade. He was wildly outspoken. He scared people. And he covered that campaign as the Rolling Stone wild journalist. But actually, weirdly, Foster Wallace was more of an outsider than Hunter S. Thompson. There wasn't the drink and the drugs. But Hunter S. Thompson actually did cover that campaign for a whole year. At the end of the year, it was thought that he was the journalist who had spent most time of all of the journalists in American journalism writing about the 1972 campaign. And for all of his outsider credentials, actually, Hunter S. Thompson's dark secret was that he was an insider. He loved the horse race. He loved the cut and thrust of American politics. He wanted to break the news. He wanted to get the story. And he did compete with the other journalists to try and get insider information about what was really going on. And the other journalists sometimes tried to find out what Hunter S. Thompson knew. I think it was partly because his background was as a sports writer. And so he loved calling the horse race. You don't get any of that from David Foster Wallace, though David Foster Wallace did write some great essays about tennis. He doesn't cover 
the 2000 presidential campaign like a sports race. He has a very, very different interest in it. And he was only there for a week. He just arrived, took the temperature and disappeared. He didn't embed himself with the campaign in the way that Hunter S. Thompson did. In some ways, Foster Wallace's essay has more in common with another book that was written by a Rolling Stone journalist about the 1972 presidential campaign, not as well known today, though pretty well known at the time, by a man called Timothy Krause, who was a Rolling Stone reporter, but also Hunter S. Thompson's bagman and gopher, and the guy who, among other things, was there to keep him out of jail and try and make sure that he got from venue to venue in one piece, which was easier said than done. He was his sidekick. He was a more conventional reporter. And he wrote a book called The Boys on the Bus, which was not about the candidates in 1972, and it's not about the politics. It's not about the issues. It is writing about the people who wrote about the campaign. It is covering the coverage. It's about the media and how campaigns are packaged and presented and who are the journalists who really have an influence and how does it work. It's a real insider's account, but not of politics, of journalism. And David Foster Wallace's essay has quite a lot of that quality too. He spends a lot more time writing about not just the reporters, but the technicians, the guys in the background, the boys on the bus. In 2000, in 1972, it still was a completely male-dominated world. So these were all boys. And one of the things that Timothy Krause noted in 72 was the weird herd mentality of American journalism, the way in which what's meant to be a cutthroat business, the idea is that these boys are competing with each other to get the news. They want to break the story. But they think the same. There's a groupthink quality to it. Actually, none of them dares step out of line. They all need to know what the other ones were thinking. They are very self-consciously and slightly pompously the gatekeepers of American news. And collectively, what they try and do is inflate their status by making sure that no one gets too far outside the story. The story is highly conventional and packaged because the journalists involved are a tribe. They are a tribe with their own internal hierarchies people who have status within the high-status world of American journalism. They defer to each other, but they also mimic and imitate each other. And there is a kind of captured quality to them. Foster Wallace describes it, Krause describes it. They share a sense that they are part of a process that they have to nurture, to which they belong. They mustn't upset the apple cart. In 2000, what Foster Wallace describes is recognisably the same world as the one that Timothy Krause described in 1972. The boys on the bus have not changed that much. They have changed in some ways, but not that much. So part of the humour in this essay, and it is funny, up Simba, it's very mocking about the pomposity of the lead journalists. Foster Wallace calls them the 12 monkeys, 12 men from the big papers, the, the high-status pencils, as they're known, the writers, who move as a pack, almost interchangeable, identically dressed, identically spoken, using the same bodily movements as they float around the campaign like a little herd of some small creatures, all of them trying to think not what's true, but what are the others thinking? So that they know what the story is. There's a second guessing to the story, which is the story is what the others have decided the story is. 
So it is a hermetically sealed world. And there is also, as described by Foster Wallace, as described earlier by Timothy Krause, a Stockholm Syndrome quality to the coverage of an American presidential campaign. The journalists are captured in some way. They're trapped. They're literally trapped on the bus. They have to be ferried from place to place. They depend on their captors for food and for shelter. They are at the mercy of the people that they are meant to be covering. And they become dependent on them. They accept the little tidbits that they're given. They are being fed and manipulated, and somehow they also become grateful. It is not a particularly confrontational world. For all the apparent animosity between the candidates and the press, when you go inside as an outsider, what you notice is how symbiotically connected they are in the same infrastructure that feeds them the same stuff. They're breathing the same air. It's stale, but they can't breathe outside it. So Foster Wallace describes American politics in 2000 in a way that for anyone who's read some of those earlier campaign accounts of the ways in which journalism works, it's very familiar. But a couple of things are different, and the differences are what make the essay. The first difference relates to technology and the way in which news is presented and packaged. In 1972, when Krause is writing, and indeed this is part of Hunter S. Thompson's aspirational quality to be a writer. Though television is clearly already the dominant medium, it's how most Americans are going to be getting their news. It is still the upstart medium, even in 1972. And print, newspaper journalism, retains its status in that hierarchy, though the celebrity of the the big newsmen of the Walter Cronkites is apparent to everyone. There is still a standing for the pencils, the scribes, the writers, which they cherish and they protect. But it is real. They really do have standing. By 2000, it's not that TV has taken over. A lot of the people that Foster Wallace is writing about are themselves writers. But visual news, the visual communication of information is now the dominant mode. The writers are secondary to not only the image, but the immediacy of the image, because by 2000, this is also the age of 24-7 news. So by 2000, CNN has been going for 20 years. CNN didn't exist in 1972. It was created in 1980. By 2000, it's taken for granted that the news has to happen in real time. And the journalists who are covering the campaign do not have the time that they did in 72 to collectively shape the story. And it did often take time for the story to emerge, for people to recognise that it was a story and to decide collectively what it meant. The gatekeepers would fashion the news and it would appear. By 2000, there wasn't the time to do any of that. When the news happened, it happened and everybody was running around trying to keep up and using what was their new technology, including new digital information technology and cell phones. This is now the age of the cell phone, which was not true in 1972. It's 2000, so it's a long time ago. The cell phones were big, clunky things. And when they broke, as Foster Wallace said, and I'm quoting him here, it was not an exaggeration that the journalist whose cell phone broke had to be sedated. So traumatic was the experience because suddenly you were outside of the loop. You couldn't communicate. This is big, clunky technology by our standards, but by their standards, it worked to a timetable of immediacy. And that is one of the differences. And part of the appeal of Foster Wallace's essay is how he writes about this technology, because he is fascinated by the hardware 
And this is still technology which is primarily describable in terms of its physical appearance, its weight, its sound, its heft. And he writes so beautifully about what to us now, I think, feel like big, ugly, clunky pieces of technology. He writes about cell phones like Thoreau writes about insects. He loves describing them. He loves observing them and observing the way they impact on the behavior of other creatures around them. So one of the things that Foster Wallace notes in this essay, in this weird, insular, hierarchical world, is the way different patterns of behavior emerge to establish identity and status. One of them is, this is still a world where to get your phone to work, you have to pull out an antenna and the producers, the TV producers, pull out their antennae with their teeth, all of them. The writers, the scribes, the pencils pull out their antennae with their fingers. And it's a universal rule. It's emerged. I don't think anyone knows how or why, but that's how you signal who you are, teeth or fingers, when you're making your phone work. It's a time of modems. So Foster Wallace talks about one of the things he associates with being on the bus and the campaign is the hum and the buzz and the thrum of people trying to plug in to get their modems to work. One of the ways in which it feels like a very, very distant world is that it is a plug-in world. So these people are going from place to place following the campaign, from town hall meeting to ugly mid-budget hotel, small towns, places without great communication infrastructure. And they've constantly got to find a way to plug themselves in, which is why they need the bus. One of the reasons they're captured is the campaign provides the bus for the journalists, and the journalists need the bus to plug in their equipment. And what they need on the bus is connectivity, and so they are dependent on the campaigns. Big pieces of equipment being lumbered around and so a lot of the people who are following these campaigns are the techies, the guys, again, almost all of them guys, who have to carry this equipment, who have to make it work. And one of the things that Foster Wallace identifies is that given the groupthink of the actual journalists, given the ways in which they are so conscious of status that they are tiptoeing around the news, trying to make sure they don't say the wrong thing. If you really want to find out what's going on, you have to talk to the tech guys, because the tech guys both know how the equipment works, which is the thing on which the whole campaign turns. But also, they are like Foster Wallace, just observing all this madness. They don't have a stake in it. Their job is just to make sure that the pictures get out. And so they can see what's really going on. During the week he's on the campaign trail, when Foster Wallace wants to know what's happening, why the candidates are doing what they're doing, why the news is breaking in a particular way, he asks the technicians who work the equipment and they tell him. They tell him what George W. Bush is up to. They tell him what John McCain's campaign strategy is, because the 12 monkeys, A, won't talk to the journalists from Rolling Stone, and B, don't actually know what's going on. They have been so captured. So that's the first difference. The second difference is to do with the packaging of the candidates themselves. And this is the subject of Foster Wallace's essay. In 1972, people had come to learn that American presidential politics was a massively packaged business. And they had learned it in part because of a book that was published in 1968 by Joe McGuinness called The Selling of the President about the candidacy of Richard Nixon when he first won the presidency and the ways in which he was an entirely packaged candidate. He was a product of Madison Avenue. This was politics as advertising. It wasn't especially shocking. Most people probably suspected it. But the way it was presented meant that back then it was news. It was, for some people at least, 
a revelation of a sort, that this whole business was so packaged and pre-prepared and artificial and stale and sterile. And so by 1972, though it was known, it could still come as a shock, the extent of it. By 2000, nobody didn't know and nobody was remotely shocked. It was just taken for granted that every campaign and every candidate was a package, was something that had been cooked up, had been focus grouped, had been pre-prepared, had been spun, that the candidates were talking from talking points and the interviews were themselves sterile and fake and the whole thing was a giant confection. Everybody understood that. And part of the reason that Foster Wallace went to cover John McCain's campaign is that he had heard a rumour, and Rolling Stone had heard a rumour, that McCain was a bit different, that something about the McCain campaign was cutting through the prevailing, overwhelming cynicism of the American public about American politics, that McCain was in some way that was not true of the other candidates, including his two leading rivals, his rival for the Republican nomination, George W. Bush, and then the man that he would probably, it seemed, in February 2000, fight if he got the nomination for the presidency, Al Gore, Bill Clinton's vice president. Bush and Gore were packaged. They were, as Foster Wallace says of them, not quite human enough even to be worth hating. They were, as all politicians seem to be, humanoid replicants, like imitations of a human being, going through the motions, doing quite a good job of seeming to be human-like, but so obviously constructed that it was hard to feel strongly about them at all. And that was turning people off politics massively, including, Foster Wallace had been told, young people who just couldn't care less. By this point, it was very hard to persuade young people. This is, in theory, the readership of Rolling Stone, though by 2000, I'm not sure young people read Rolling Stone much either. But anyway, the theoretical readership of Rolling Stone were people who just had switched off from politics altogether. And yet, Foster Wallace had heard that young people were listening to John McCain and that people who had no intention of voting because they thought it didn't make any difference who you voted for, Bush or Gore, it was all the same, thought that there was something different about John McCain. A Republican was nonetheless attracting to his campaign teenagers, students, independents, people without a party affiliation, and people who said they had stopped voting, but McCain was inspiring them to think that maybe they should get back involved. So the question was, why? What did he got? And the answer was he had two qualities that seemed to make him different from other presidential candidates. One, a quality that he shared with everyone, and another, a quality that was entirely unique to him. The quality that he seemed to share with other people, but not with his rivals in politics, was that he was recognisably a human being. That is, he came across as somehow not packaged. He was acerbic, and witty, and he spoke off the cuff. He wasn't a particularly good orator. He wasn't very good at the talking points. It really had to be drummed into him to stay on message. He kept going off message. He was sometimes self-deprecating. He seemed to have a sense of humour, which is a rare quality in American politics. Even rarer, it came across in his public appearances. He seemed to be human. And yet Foster Wallace noticed there was something odd about a candidate whose obvious humanity was what gave him appeal because those young people and independents and alienated voters who were being switched on by John McCain seemed to be switched on by his human qualities regardless of the views that he was expressing because Foster Wallace noted straight away that the things that McCain was saying 
were the sorts of things that would normally turn off younger voters because he was pretty conservative. He was a conservative Republican and he had pretty conservative views. He was against Martin Luther King Day becoming a national holiday. He was against environmental regulation. He was for drilling. He was in favour of a war on drugs. He was in favour of war in the sense that he was comfortable with military action. But it didn't seem to matter. Foster Wallace says the odd thing about McCain's candidacy is the piss and vinegar way that he expressed himself, the acerbic reality of his character, seemed to blind people to his piss and vinegar views, which were sharp and harsh, and for many voters, a real turnoff. So the first paradox that Foster Wallace identified was the humanness of the candidate seemed to give him a free pass for what were, from Foster Wallace's point of view, relatively inhumane political views. Why was it the conservative candidate who was attracting the young people? Is it enough just to be a human being? And then the second quality that McCain had that made him unique, he didn't share with anyone, was he was an authentic war hero. And he had a story, a backstory that no one could rival, that nothing compared with. He had been shot down as a pilot in Vietnam. He had been terribly injured. He had been captured with broken limbs. He had been taken to a notorious jail, a prison, where his broken limbs were left untreated, so they never healed properly. He was in the most appalling pain. And Foster Wallace writes this whole story out, including in awestruck tones, describing just how much physical pain John McCain must have suffered then and throughout his life, given the injuries he suffered and the way that they were or rather weren't allowed to heal. He was then tortured. And then his captors, his Vietnamese captors, discovered that he was the son of an admiral, and therefore there would be a propaganda coup in releasing him. And so they offered him release because he was a special case. And McCain refused on the grounds that the rule was in the American services, prisoners of war would be released in the order in which they were captured. No one got special treatment. So though he was a special case, not just because he was the son of an admiral, but also because he had suffered more than anyone could imagine, maybe not more than anyone, but unimaginably, he nonetheless refused to be released. And so he stayed, and he stayed for five years, and he had turned down the opportunity to get out. And Foster Wallace says that means he had a quality in politics which looked unimpeachable and was incredibly rare. He seemed to be a man of his word. That is, he seemed to be someone who wouldn't sell out. And if the view of politics was that everyone in politics was a sellout, because everyone was being sold, everyone was being packaged and sold as a product, here was a politician who seemed to be the opposite. And that then poses the other paradoxical question. It's politics, so he has to be sold. You can't do politics at that level without packaging. So how do you sell the man who refuses to be sold? How do you sell the man who isn't a sellout? Is it even possible to do it? That's the subject of this essay. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And Foster Wallace thinks it all comes to a head during the week that he was covering the campaign in February 2000. So John McCain was an outsider candidate. He wasn't thought to have much chance. And then he got a surprising win in the New Hampshire primary against George W. Bush, who was the hot favourite, who had the establishment behind him, the party behind him, the party machine behind him and the money behind him. But McCain really spooked the Bush campaign. And McCain was attracting these people who didn't seem normally to have an interest in this kind of politics. And the show was moving on to South Carolina, which was going to be a make or break primary. And the Bush campaign had turned very negative. So they were attacking John McCain for his war record. They were claiming it wasn't what it seemed. They were spreading lurid stories about his private life. They were indulging in a notorious practice of the time, which was called push polling, where voters were rung up ostensibly to be polled, but actually to be fed negative information about the rival campaign. And it put John McCain in a terrible bind. And this is what Foster Wallace describes. What do you do if you're the candidate whose candidacy depends upon not being politics as normal, as being somehow different, as being both human and also not for sale, when your opponent who has money goes negative? Because you can't win. If you go negative back, if you meet fire with fire, then you're no different from the rest of them. If you don't, if you try and rise above it all, Everyone knows that negative campaigning, negative advertising works. And if you leave these rumours unchecked, they will eventually destroy you. And as the text explained to Foster Wallace, the central truth of this kind of politics is if you're McCain, your candidacy can only work if you bring people into politics, get them to vote who have switched off. So you need turnout to increase. You need to get people voting who weren't voting. And negative campaigning will put those people off. So negative campaigning is fine if you're Bush, because if you're Bush, you don't want more people voting. You don't want the independents and the young people coming back in. You win if just the people who can still bear politics show up to vote, because they are the more conventional ones, and they will probably follow the party's lead and the party line. So McCain looks like he's in an impossible situation. He can't respond to the negative advertising, and he can't allow it to stand. And then there's a moment where Foster Wallace sees him do something that he thinks captures the paradoxical quality of his candidacy and his campaign. And it happens at a town hall meeting where a typical middle-aged American mom gets up to ask him a question. And she says to him that her son, her young teenage son, had been completely disillusioned with American politics. It was so packaged. It was so fake. And then he had stumbled across John McCain a true war hero, and a man who seemed to tell the truth, and who seemed to be willing to take risks. 
And her teenage son had suddenly been inspired and thought American politics does still produce heroes. And it does still produce leaders that you can follow, that you can put your heart and soul into. And then he got called up by one of these pollers who claimed to be asking him, and it's not clear why this person was calling a teenager, he clearly answered his parents' phone, asking him about how he might view the candidates, but actually started feeding him very, very negative information about John McCain, scurrilous information about McCain. And the woman says to McCain, and my son is distraught. All his illusions have been shattered. He thought that somehow politics was getting better. And now here is your opponent trashing you, dragging you into the gutter. What are you going to do about it? And what surprises Foster Wallace is two aspects of McCain's response. First of all, he thinks he looks like he's genuinely moved by this story. He gets tears in his eyes. And the question is, are they real or are they fake? But Foster Wallace thinks that they might be real, that he might actually feel some compassion for this woman and her son and their story, because he shares the view that politics has become disgusting. And the second thing that he notices and is struck by is that McCain does not do what any other politician would do, which is to take this opportunity to trash his opponent. He's been given a golden chance to say, this is why George W. Bush and everything he represents is wrong for American politics. He's trashing me. He's trashing my reputation. We have to resist this. He doesn't do that. What McCain does is he apologizes. He personally apologizes for what his rival is saying about him. And Foster Wallace says, first of all, it's genius. It's the only thing that could possibly work. If he just starts attacking Bush, he's as bad as the rest of them. If he ignores it, he's allowing it unchecked. The only thing he can do is somehow personally apologize for what's gone wrong with American politics. It's genius. It feels genuine. But it also is exactly what a really shrewd campaign advisor would advise McCain to do. And so that leaves Foster Wallace with his question, which he says is the central question of this kind of politics in America, maybe this kind of politics anywhere, which is when you see an event like that, which could be subject to a deeply cynical interpretation, that is the perfect packaging of the unpackaged candidate, the tears, the compassion. Or you could say that was a genuine moment that cut through. Here was a candidate who didn't do the obvious thing, who seemed to speak from the heart, who may genuinely have been apologising. Each interpretation is equally plausible. It feels like they can't both be true. And yet it also feels like maybe they both have to be true. So if they are both true, if this is both a moment of cynicism and compassion, what the hell does it say about politics? And insofar as he has an answer, Foster Wallace says, it has to be in the eye of the beholder. In the end, you can't ask yourself what really happened here. There is no answer to that question. The only question you can meaningfully answer is, what do I think happened here? And so it says more about you than it does about the candidate. That's Foster Wallace's conclusion. It is an extraordinary essay. It's completely gripping. Apart from anything else, it's very suspenseful because this event is described in deeply dramatic terms. But it is only half the story. So there is something missing from this account. In fact, there are two kinds of things missing from this account. One, I think that Foster Wallace has, for his own reasons, left out. And the other, it wasn't for him to tell. He couldn't have told the the full story. The bit that's left out, he hints at it, but he doesn't say it, is that none of it mattered. 
So this incredibly dramatic moment, which felt like a pivotal moment in the whole campaign that gets all of the news guys buzzing with excitement. Here is real breaking news. This moment where McCain seems to find a way to deal with the negative campaigning without going negative himself just didn't make any difference. He lost the primary in South Carolina. The negative campaigning did work. It always works, really. Money wins. The establishment won. McCain's candidacy fizzled out not long after this. He couldn't get enough people who weren't normally interested in politics to vote. George W. Bush won the nomination easily, handily, and then not nearly so easily or handily beat Gore in the election thanks to the Supreme Court. But that's another story. But the McCain campaign, this moment of high excitement, was the high point. And within months, it was just a historical footnote. And in some ways, Huntress Thompson's account in 1972 is more honest about this because it is the story of the whole campaign. So Huntress Thompson writes about the George McGovern candidacy for the Democratic nomination, the excitements, the highs and lows, the twists, the turns, the drama of it. And then that campaign in the end crashes and burns and he gets crushed by Nixon in the election. And in his reflections on what it all meant, Huntress Thompson says, actually, looking back, none of it really meant anything. The hard facts of American politics wipe out any of this drama. The drama is just froth. And Huntress Thompson says of 1972, the hard facts are incumbent presidents are incredibly hard to budge. And Nixon-style campaigning just works. Nixon was always going to crush McGovern. The twists, the turns, the drama doesn't mean anything. The hard facts win in the end. And you could say in 2000, something like that was also true. But you wouldn't get that impression from this essay, which feels like something has been seen that will last. It didn't last. The other thing that this essay can't tell, the other part of the story, is what happened next. Not what happened next in 2000. Bush ends up as president by hook or by crook. A bit of both. But what happened to McCain? And what happened to American politics over the next two decades? So 2004, Bush, as the incumbent, proves to be very hard to shift. The Democrats put up against him John Kerry, and they try for the war hero strategy in the way that McCain was a war hero. So was John Kerry, not quite on the same scale. Bush could be painted as a kind of draft dodger. He's the man who didn't fight in Vietnam. John Kerry did. So in 2004, John Kerry shows up, as he did at the Democratic convention, saluting the nation and said, I'm here, I'm ready to serve. And Bush went full bore negative on him, as he did on McCain, and trashed his war record, not directly, but indirectly. A new word entered the American political lexicon, swift boating, which is to get veterans to tell a different story from the heroic story that's being told about the other candidate. Whether true or untrue, some of the mud sticks, and suddenly John Kerry doesn't look like a war hero. He looks like another packaged politician. And then in 2008, John McCain does win the Republican nomination. So the thing that didn't happen in 2000 does happen in 2008. And John McCain gets to fight the general election for president, finally, as the Republican candidate. And in 2008, he wins not so much as an insurgent outsider, but more in the end as an insider. He gets the support of the party and the party establishment behind him. He defeats his main rival, Mitt Romney, who feels a little bit less reliable to the people who count in the Republican Party. McCain, by this point, is older. He is much better known, partly because of 2000. So he can't come across as some new kid on the block who's coming to refresh American politics. He doesn't feel particularly fresh in 2008. And 
he has to campaign as an insider and partly he has to campaign as the grown-up, as the guy who got things done in the Senate. He was by that point a long-term senator who sometimes got things done by reaching across party divides. He offered himself as a candidate who understood the need to get beyond the partisanship, the growing partisanship of American politics. But he was also campaigning for the presidency after two terms of a Republican president, his former rival, George W. Bush. And it's very hard to defeat an incumbent president. But it's also very hard after two terms of an incumbent president to win for that party. Al Gore discovered it in 2000, and John McCain discovered it in 2008. And he was up against a candidate in Barack Obama, who clearly was the new kid on the block. I mean, whatever McCain might have thought about his ability to package himself in those terms, he couldn't conceivably compete with Obama, who on every measure was the guy who was re-energizing young voters, who was using new technology and new ways of communicating to bring disillusioned voters back into the political process, who was fresh, who of course looked completely different from any other presidential candidate. And McCain looked like another old white guy, which is what he was. And so he needed something to refresh his campaign. He needed something to offer against Obama's newness because he could no longer be the guy that Foster Wallace had seen in 2000, the guy who could speak to that teenage boy. He was also running on a pretty conservative platform. And many of the voters that the Republicans needed to get back into American politics were people who felt that their views were somehow beyond the pale of conventional political discourse from the right. So he chose as his vice presidential running mate, a relatively unknown politician, a considerably younger politician, a female politician, and a populist politician, Sarah Palin. When McCain had been running in 2000, and Foster Wallace went to cover him for Rolling Stone, one of the oddities of the way Foster Wallace writes about it, as seen from now, though at the time I imagine it didn't seem odd at all, is he describes McCain as the populist. He's the populist candidate in 2000. And he doesn't mean that negatively. It's not meant to be a term of abuse. He's describing a politician who is seeking a connection with ordinary voters that packaged professional party politics has seemed to lose the ability to conjure up. And the populist is the politician who finds that magic connection outside of the party machine and the party box. And it's necessary. It's one of the reasons that Foster Wallace is drawn to this campaign. He wants to see this in action. What is that magic connection in an age where politics has become so sterile that populism feels like an injection of life into it? Foster Wallace actually calls him a Tory populist. That's part of the paradox of this. He is in that weird way, both a throwback and a reinvigorator. In 2008, the populist is Sarah Palin, not John McCain, and it's the beginnings of the new populism, something much more raw, much more aggressive. But it is still recognisably McCain trying to do the thing that he captured in part before it was snuffed out by George W. Bush in 2000, that sense of fresh energy. So McCain chooses Palin, and Palin is presented at the Republican convention, and she's a wow. She's a great orator, much, much better than John McCain. She seems to many Americans like an ordinary American. She's an Alaskan housewife. Uh, she's unknown. She's fresh. She's funny, genuinely funny. She's one of the funniest orators in American public life then, and maybe now, I'm not sure, I haven't heard her for a while. 
it's called a Hail Mary pass by the, the monkeys in the press. They say this is desperation. McCain knows he's losing and the economy is starting to tank at this point. This is the beginning of the financial crisis. I mean, McCain's almost got no chance against Obama, but let's roll out Sarah Palin and see if she can sort of turn it around. And for a few days, it looks like it might work. But then something else emerges, which is though Sarah Palin is fresh and funny and acerbic and populist and pretty right wing, she is startlingly unqualified for this role in the sense that she is genuinely ignorant. She doesn't seem to understand some of the basics of how the world works or indeed where places are in the world. And the anxiety is that McCain is an old guy by this point. If he becomes president, there is a chance, as people worry now about Biden and Harris, there is a chance that his vice president will become president. So Sarah Palin has to look like a president. And as soon as the the monkeys, not of the press, but of the main networks, get their hands on her and start quizzing her about basic things like where countries are and what is the Reagan doctrine, it's clear she can't answer. She doesn't know. And her vice presidential candidacy becomes a kind of excruciating joke. She still connects with lots of people who have been turned off from politics. But the gatekeepers are still enough the gatekeepers that they can trash her, and they do. And she has a we discover afterwards a full-blown breakdown during the campaign. They just about hold it together. They get through to the election. She and McCain lose. It didn't work. By a terrible coincidence, terrible ironic coincidence, the day that Sarah Palin gave her first network interview, the day it was broadcast, 12th of September 2008, and the following day was the first time that Tina Fey did her now celebrated skit, her impersonation of Sarah Palin, the world's most ignorant politician, on Saturday Night Live, the 13th of September. But the 12th of September was also the day that David Foster Wallace took his own life. So Palin and McCain lose, and, and McCain is effectively then done as a future president. And then how does the story end? Well, this story, I think, ends in 2016, when another outsider candidate vies for the Republican nomination. And it turns out that it was Sarah Palin's populism and not McCain's populism that was the harbinger of the future. McCain, in the end, failed in his ambition to be president. Sarah Palin failed in her ambition to be vice president. But she indicated the way it might work if a candidate could be found or could invent him or herself in such a way that that sort of populism was impervious to being taken down by the gatekeepers of the American media. And such a candidate did emerge in 2016. 2015 is when he launched his campaign, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who was a Palin-like candidate in the sense that A, he's funny, B, he's a good orator, he's very, very good on the stump. He says things that no one else would dream of saying. He's vicious and he's cruel. And he speaks a language which is recognisably not political speak. He doesn't sound like any other politician in the way that Palin for a brief moment didn't sound like any other politician. His politics is brutal. And the establishment, both the Republican Party establishment and also the mainstream media establishment, assumed that they would do what they had done in the past, which was to box this thing in, to make force it back into the box of American politics so it could be contained and, if necessary, destroyed. And it turned out in 2016 that that wasn't possible. It couldn't be done. It was different. For the first time, this kind of candidate was impervious, relatively impervious to that kind of takedown. 
And my God, Donald Trump was ignorant in many of the ways that Sarah Palin was ignorant. There were many aspects of the conventional view of the world that a politician was meant to have about America's alliances and its traditions and its histories and its conventions and the rules of the game and the rules of the road. He didn't know. He didn't care. He didn't care that people knew that he didn't know and he didn't care. Sarah Palin, in the end, was forced to be embarrassed about her ignorance. And she had to be packaged as though she were less ignorant than she actually was. Donald Trump's never been embarrassed about anything in his life, as far as I'm aware, and certainly not about that kind of ignorance. It was a badge of honour. He didn't know the stuff that the conventional politicos knew. Why would he want to? That was the stuff that was destroying America. Trump was able to do it and not be destroyed by it. Why? What was the difference? What's the difference from 2000 and 2008? I'd say there are two differences. One is the technology. Foster Wallace's story is about hardware. The reason it's called Up Simba is because he recounts that was the thing that one of his favorite cameramen would say every time he lugged the enormous piece of equipment that he carried around with him onto his shoulder so that he could film what was coming next. He would say with a grunt and a sigh, up Simba as he dragged this giant pet onto his shoulder and lugged it around. These were men who were attached to vast pieces of metallic equipment. And that was how the gatekeepers managed to keep control. You had to be plugged in. You had to have the equipment. This was still a world with high barriers to entry into the information sharing and manipulating space. By 2016, that was all over. The gatekeepers weren't gone. They were still there, but they could no longer keep control. This was no longer a hardware world, a plug-in world, a world where people had to follow the bus so that they could plug their phones in, so that they could pull out the antennae with their teeth. This was a world in which, relatively speaking, information sharing was permissionless. Anyone could do it. It was from hardware to software and to platforms. And on these platforms, it was much, much harder to control the story. The 12 monkeys couldn't do it. The networks couldn't do it. The party establishment couldn't do it. Trump realized that he could control the story simply by continuing to make news by being the center of attention. And that was only possible because the technology allowed it, primarily in his case on Twitter. And everyone ended up following in his wake, not following him on the bus. It wasn't that kind of campaign at all, but following in the wake of his 3 a.m. Twitter pronouncements. That became the next day's news. That was what changed. The loving descriptions of David Foster Wallace and the hardware seem like they belong to a prehistoric world. And the second thing that changed was Trump was a different kind of candidate. Because the paradox for Foster Wallace about John McCain and John McCain's populism, as he called it, was how do you sell the man who's not for sale? If his connection with ordinary people is this authentic quality that he is true to himself, he is not a packaged politician. How do you sell that? No such paradox arises in the case of Donald Trump. No one says of Donald Trump, how do you sell the man who's not for sale? Because Donald Trump is for sale. Donald Trump is a salesman. That is his authentic self. That's who he is. So there is no sense in which he's being pulled in two different directions, cynicism and compassion. The cynicism is the essence of the man. So he can be an authentically human politician. He can present as someone who is not playing the game, who is being true to himself, who is being sincere 
I think you can characterize Donald Trump as a sincere politician, not because he doesn't lie, he lies all the time, but because lying is sincerely part of his human character. It's who he is. He is genuine. He is authentic. He is not packaged by people in the background who tell him what to say and how to come across and to be careful. He's unbelievably reckless for a a national politician, for a presidential candidate. And the recklessness of not caring that people could see that this was all just a show is what made him authentic. John McCain could never do that because John McCain was a politician and John McCain was a man with a heroic backstory. One of the things, one of the conventions that Donald Trump broke in his candidacy was he trashed John McCain. So by the time Trump was running for president, John McCain was a revered figure in American politics from both sides of the party divide. He was the grand old man of American politics. He was known to be a true, authentic war hero. He had lived this heroic life of public service, including in great pain. He had overcome extraordinary physical barriers to lead that life. And Trump was having none of it. When Trump was asked about McCain in 2016, he said, I quote, he's not a war hero. He was captured. I like people who weren't captured, okay? You're not allowed to say that about John McCain. It's not just that that's a gaffe. It's beyond the pale. Donald Trump didn't care, and it didn't do him any harm. When McCain died in 2018, and Trump was president, and he heard that American government buildings would be flying their flags at half-mast for John McCain, hero of the Republic, he said, or he was reported to have said, this is from an article in the magazine on background briefing, but it sounds like Donald Trump, he said, what the fuck are we doing that for? The guy was a fucking loser. The fact that Trump could say these things about John McCain in 2016 and 2018 and become president and plausibly in 2023, I have no idea what's going to happen, become president again, is evidence of how the story that David Foster Wallace tells, which is completely recognisable today, it feels like the link between 1972 and 2016 or 2020 or 2024, you can see the threads that run through that story from Hunter S. Thompson and Timothy Krause through David Foster Wallace to today. But Trump and everything that Trump stands for. And I know in talking about these essays, I come back to Trump quite a lot, but it's because he does so dominate now. He is so the essence of now. Something about him says something about everything that's going on at the moment. Trump, Trump's candidacy, Trump's presidency, makes not just 1972 and Richard Nixon seem a long time ago, it makes 2000 seem like a long time ago. So yes, This essay by David Foster Wallace is a 21st century essay about a 21st century political campaign in which he talks about things and uses language which is completely recognisable from now. The populism, the shift in technology, the way that the news is covered. But when you look at Trump, 2000 seems like a long, long time ago. As always, we will tweet links to essays in the LRB and elsewhere about today's subject. There's some brilliant essays about David Foster Wallace, including that takedown from 1996, which is, if nothing else, very funny, but also more recent pieces about him and about his very, very complicated legacy. Coming up on Past, Present, Future, 
We're going to be speaking with Zadie Smith, with Mary Beard, with Andrew O'Hagan, with John Gray. And I'm going to be doing more essays in the History of Ideas series about the great 21st century short pieces of non-fiction. Next, it'll be Umberto Eco. All that is coming up on Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.